If you would please turn to John chapter 6, it would be to your great benefit to put your eyes on the Word of God this morning. Making our way through John chapter 6, considering the bread of life. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 22 through 33. Since we're kind of in the middle of a story here and had a an interesting, almost seemingly intermission last week with Jesus walking on the water. I'll just give you a little bit more context as you're turning in your Bibles to John chapter 6, verse 22. Jesus has fed the 5,000 plus, and he's sent his disciples across the lake. They met a storm in the middle of the lake, but they also met Jesus in the midst of that storm. And now, as they have made their way across and Jesus has joined them. There's this question of what happens to these crowds that stayed behind that Jesus kind of quickly shuffled his disciples away from. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So I'll read this and then we'll pray. Verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there. Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Would you pray with me again, please? Father in heaven, this morning we indeed ask that you would simply do what Jesus has taught us in this. You are the one who gives the bread of heaven, the bread of life, the bread of God. You've given Christ to be our all-satisfying treasure, to meet our deepest needs, to be our sanctuary in the storm, to be more than enough, and now today to show us that the means of transferring this great salvation is by grace alone. as we come this morning, would you reveal in our hearts what you would like us to deal with in regards to our relationship with you as we see our standings before you in Christ. Perhaps we don't know Christ this morning. Perhaps someone might listen and consider these things for the first time. We thank you that again, you do pour out your grace abundantly to us. 
We have every reason to believe that if we'll humble ourselves this morning to hear what you have to say, you will show yourself powerful, good, gracious, and merciful, kind, patient, generous, and loving. We thank you for the sanctuary we have in Christ. We pray that he might be magnified this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is John 6 as a whole chapter is so rich. That's why there's 71 verses in it. There's so much that goes on between this astounding miracle of feeding beyond 5,000 people with just a little kid's lunch. And then beyond that, to consider again that Jesus has met his disciples in the middle of a storm, them on a boat struggling, and he walking peacefully across the waters. He's shown himself to be a great provider. He's shown himself to be more than enough. He's shown himself to be the sanctuary in the middle of the storm, not just the one that had sent them out into it or the one that would receive them on the other end, but the one that would meet them in the middle of it as well. And now today, as we come to considering these, the remnants of the crowd, Jesus' message to them kind of comes with a pretty stark warning. Our title this morning is Sought by Men, Sealed by the Father in reference to the bread of life. There's a seeking going on with what is left of this multitude of crowds. It's been a day. And verse 22, it says, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side. If this crowd was between 5,000 and maybe even upwards of 20,000 people, particularly as we consider that the remnant that remained got into boats and went across, we don't imagine that there were enough boats for nearly 20,000 or even maybe 1,000. This is a small fraction, most likely of who Jesus fed the day before. But I I wondered in thinking about this passage, I wondered what was going on in the minds of the crowds that did decide to remain. We looked at the disciples last week, and again, you know, as they're seeing this wonderful thing happen, and they're seeing the crowds say, we should make this guy our king. Let's take him and put him in that place. And Jesus immediately forcing his disciples to get into the boat, You know, you kind of picture him shoving the boat off into the lake and saying, get out of here. Like, this isn't a good place to be. And then Jesus dismisses the crowds. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other gospel writers tell us this. Uh, And then he went up onto a mountain and then, of course, met him in the storm. But, But what of these that remained? What were they thinking? You know, I mean, it's a strange waiting period. They were there the next day, whether they came home and came back or whether they just stayed there or something. We don't really know all those details. But they were clearly seeking something. And Jesus even tells them that, doesn't he? They were seeking something. And yet what Jesus tells them is that what they were seeking was not good. To be brief with this opening section of 22 through 24, uh, this is is just kind of John filling in the gaps as far as um, what was going on that they had been observing. Uh, This is a, a section that reminds us here that this crowd is truly looking for Jesus, but they don't really know what they're supposed to be looking for in Jesus, right? Of course, our main passage this morning happens in verse 26 and 27, but hear their question again in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And that question is kind of loaded with this, you know, when did you come here? How long have you been here? How did you get here? 
there's, there's a lot going on in the Greek there as far as they're questioning him. It doesn't really make sense, and it kind of authenticates that last part of the story that we read last week where it says they were glad to take him into the boat, verse 21, immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. It, it kind of shows that this does seem to have been a miraculous, you know, quick transportation across the sea. They still had three or four miles to go, but John tells us that Jesus got them there immediately. So they were kind of surprised. How, how did they, we didn't see you get in the boat. We saw your disciples go off and then you off to the mountain and then here you are. In their questioning, they're kind of revealing something, though it doesn't seem like they get it. They're revealing that Jesus is not just like any other person. He's certainly not just a magician who can, you know, really ration off a kid's lunch well enough that he could feed far more than it had intended. You remember that the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't just like what we do for communion. It was a feast, though there were only two courses. Everyone left with full bellies, and there were leftovers. How many baskets did they have? Twelve baskets of leftovers. And then, though they didn't experience this pretty monumental thing of Jesus walking across the stormy sea, they do seem to almost recognize that the reason for him being here doesn't really make sense. There's no natural explanation for it. Unfortunately, they don't let that be that, that little moment be a sort of prompting to consider Jesus for who he is so much as considering what he might give them if they ask the right questions. As we think about the crowds this morning, I want to ask you in the place of your heart to consider what possible alternatives you might have as your motives this morning besides just coming to worship Christ. What we seek to do on Sunday morning is a simple thing. We're going to show up, we're going to sing songs, we're going to hear from God's word, and then we're going to go home. It's a pretty simple, basic thing. It's something that we do routinely. But this passage, and of course what Jesus says in verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus doesn't care only if you show up to worship, but he also cares how you show up to worship. And he doesn't just care about that on Sunday morning, he cares about that the rest of the week as well. He's shown himself to be more than enough, he's shown himself to be a sanctuary in the, stone for, in the storm for his people, but he doesn't simply want to be a magic genie. He doesn't want to just be the sort of on-call rescue service when somebody needs help. That's certainly a part of what he wants to do. He wants to be a provider. He wants to be a rescuer. But all of that provision and rescuing is meant to be pointing to something else, something deeper. They are signs of what Jesus has come to do. And what this crowd shows is that though they saw the signs didn't actually see the signs. And if that sounds cryptic, it's supposed to. Because there is sort of a mystery to how is it that these crowds didn't get it in that moment? And we've already seen that they didn't get it. Jesus withdrew from them because he knew they're going to take me by force and make me their king. That's not what I'm here to do. Has Jesus failed? If we're if we're proclaiming the gospel to somebody, either from a pulpit or from a coffee shop booth or at home or in a grocery store aisle, whatever it might be, 
we're hoping for success by the end of that, right? We're hoping that the person that we share with will say, yeah, I want to know more about Jesus, at the very least. Or, or to confess, I'm open. I, I'd like to consider these things more. And yet what Jesus does seems to be totally contrary to our provisional ideas of evangelism, doesn't it? I mean, why is it that Jesus didn't stop and say, hey, don't make me your king? In fact, I have some divine power that I'm going to use right now to stop you from this terrible thing you're going to do, and I'm going to turn you all around immediately and make all these things right. No, he actually leaves because there's a lack of understanding. All throughout the Bible, you see this, this idea of a remnant of God's people, right? You see it in stories like Gideon and his small army of 300 that was broken down after thousands and thousands were filtered out. You would think that at this point now that Jesus shows up on the scene, he's going to kind of turn that whole motif of scripture around, that motif of storytelling of, of the only the few are chosen, even though many are called. But in fact, he actually kind of compresses it even further in this. But he's not without an explanation. Again, you heard in verses 26 through 27, the crowd is seeking bread and fish. They were looking for that barley bread, that simple bread of the earth, but Christ wanted to give them something eternal. What they were looking for was temporary. They were looking for something that would perish and would spoil. Earthly bread shows their evidence of not being able to satisfy forever because it doesn't last forever. I mean, how many of us dread, maybe Sunday night's my night to do it. I try, and sometimes I just can't bring myself to. But to meet the back of the refrigerator is kind of a terrifying thing, isn't it? Especially if you know something's back there that hasn't been seen for many days and has grown little white puffballs or now has created a certain odor. Our food has a clear message to us. If you do not eat me now, I will be no good in the future. And even if you do eat me right now, it's only going to last a little while, especially with certain foods. Do not be satisfied. What they're seeking is something that is temporary. What God is offering through Christ, what he will give. I mean, listen to, we're going to talk about grace this morning and this this thing that people are meant to see and that the Father, God the Father has sealed in Christ. And they're not even getting in this immediate answer that Jesus gives them. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. If they stop right there, they say, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be seeking, right? At first he says, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In one sense, they're thinking, didn't see the signs, but ate our fill of the loaves. Like, how could we have eaten our fill, but not seen the signs? I don't know. How do you come to church on Sunday morning and go, I don't get it? You know, how, how is it that you could open up the word and, and read through the entirety of the gospel of John and go, okay, I read all of it, but it doesn't appeal to me. It doesn't seem like something I truly need. That's what's going on with the crowds here. The remnant, even those that are left, even those that we would look at and say, here are the true followers. No, Jesus left them behind and they come back. And he offers them grace again, even in the beginning of this. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Okay, stopping there. All right, I need to work. Okay, what, how, what does that look like? They're going to ask him that later. But Jesus says, the Son of Man will give this to you because on him God the Father has set his seal. Will give. Christ calls us to embrace the truth of seeking or working 
and just humble faith and just receiving from God. This surprisingly excludes more than it includes. It seems so backwards, doesn't it? If we put a sign outside the church that says free anything, right? Food, prizes, whatever. People come for free stuff. But when it comes to this gift that God wants to give freely, we suddenly have a problem. D.A. Carson, a very smart theologian, says that what Jesus is doing here is he's not emphasizing work, but he's emphasizing what is and what is not an appropriate goal. Jesus says, you came not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Your motive is wrong. The goal is inaccurate. You've missed the mark. And that literally, friends, is what sin is defined as in the Bible. Sin is defined as missing the mark. It's setting up a bullseye, pulling back the arrow, and we don't just end up somewhere on the outer ring. We have basically turned around and shot off into space when it comes to meeting the standard of God. To those who have put effort into temporary seeking to, to find those that, that food, that bread that's going to spoil, it's going to perish. Receiving grace for those that are so focused on the temporary things is an impossible challenge. And that's what Jesus offers to them, an impossible challenge. If we know a little bit of our Bibles, if we know the gospel, we know in these two verses, they, they've got it right here. The Son of Man will give it to you. God the Father has set a seal on this. You have every reason to believe what this man is telling you, and yet they're going to ask questions instead of just falling on their faces to worship. It's because it's not backed by their deserving work as they understand it. Again, as we think about them traveling across the lake, you might even imagine some of them were thinking, man, Jesus is going to be impressed with us. We're going to be like his Gideon's 300 soldiers. Everyone else left or nobody came back after yesterday, but we're here. What could he have for us? I want to enter into that small circle of disciples with Jesus and have something special about me. I want God to see why I'm putting my seal of approval upon myself. I don't imagine any of you woke up this morning with that motive in coming to church. I don't think that any of you are so vain as to wake up, sit up in bed and go, oh Lord, wait till you see what I have for you. I know it snowed last night. I'm still going to church. I know, I know, it's okay. Don't need to praise me, but I'm still going to church. There might be two inches of snow out there, but I'm gonna do it. Nobody comes with that attitude. But do you know that the enemy of your soul would love for you to embrace that? And it's probably not, oh, it came together in the snow. Okay, some of you have four-wheel drive and whatever. Some people don't care. Some people love it. Some of you got in your car and turned on Christmas music again because it was just that exciting. I know none of you did that. And I didn't either. However, <laughs> it does. The reality is that just like this small leftover part of the crowd, we all have something we would like to present to God. And I don't think that the holiest saint who still walks this earth does not have at least the temptation to imagine that there is something they have to offer to him. That there is something that they can present as their work with their seal of approval. 
And so that's what we need to realize this morning is that while we identified with the disciples last week and we said, yeah, I get this idea of being in a storm. I'm in one right now. I know that I need to be seeking Jesus in the middle of it. And that's the work of, of the people of God. But we also need to remember that we were not so long ago so very different from these crowds. Because maybe you didn't grow up thinking every day again that this is how I'm going to please God today with my life. But certainly we had a mindset before knowing Jesus that fit in with the rest of the world. Mom and dad are happy when I do this. My boss is happy when I do this. My teacher is happy when I do this. And whether we actively sought to do those things or if we actively sought to do the opposite, we understood the idea of a certain work has a certain result. And Jesus is actually calling us to say, forget about your work for a minute and receive something. Grace is free. It is wonderful. We sang about it. We continue to sing about it. The church has sung about it for ages, and yet it is not always an easy thing to receive. Listen again to what Jesus said. I know that I've read this passage over and over, but 26 and 27, wow. At the end of 27, on him, referring to Jesus, God the Father has set his seal. You can kind of imagine perhaps like that, that old, old Robin Hood movies or something where a, a wanted poster is hung up and there's a, a seal that is uh, placed with ink at the bottom and it's the crest of the king. It is a, a signification that he has authorized this message, right? This is what God has done. This is what Jesus is explaining himself as. He says, I've got the seal of approval of God on my life. It was evident to you when I fed over 5,000 people with a kid's lunch. It was evident to the disciples when a terrible storm that almost capsized their boat had seemingly no effect on him. It is obvious that Jesus is different to us, and yet we still struggle to receive that. It's important for us to keep in mind that we are in John chapter 6, and there are five chapters prior. And some of this crowd's reaction to Jesus is stuff we've seen before. Think about Nicodemus, the religious leader of the day, the super spiritual one. Jesus calls him, you're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? The teacher of Israel. You've got to imagine that as he's trying to ponder what Jesus is teaching him, at least, again, there is at least the temptation to think, like, wow, Jesus knows who I am. I am the teacher of Israel. I am really something. No wonder Jesus comes to see me. Well, I guess I came to see him. I guess it's at nighttime so that nobody knows what I'm doing. But Nicodemus didn't understand when Jesus said, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of heaven. And instead of, again, here's a guy who understands Bibles, the, the Bible probably more than any of us do, Old Testament-wise. And he sits there scratching his head going, how can a man be born when he's old? It's a really foolish response, isn't it? Like, obviously, we've read that a dozen times, or maybe even just the first time you read it, you go, oh, he's talking something metaphorical here. He's not talking about literal rebirth, and yet that's what Nicodemus went to. Skip forward from chapter 3 to chapter 4, and remember the woman at the well in Samaria. And remember that Jesus said that he would offer her living water so that she would never thirst again. And she says, Lord, or sir, give me this water. I would love to never have to come back to this well again. Do you remember it was a shameful thing that she came in the heat of the day, sweating up the hill. No one else is there because no one else wants to go at that part of the day, but she doesn't want to be seen by anyone. I would love to just 
get rid of this storm in my life of being an outcast in Samaria. Give me that living water because what I'll do then is I'll take it to my house and I will never open my door again. I'll just drink that living water and I'll be fine. This crowd says, Rabbi, when did you come here? How long have you been here? Here we are. What more do you have for us? What's the reward? They wanted a reward similar to what the woman at the well wanted, to what Nicodemus was trying to wrap his head around, the impossibility of the new birth, which is indeed something that Jesus explains, that we can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless we're born again. It has to be something that happens to us. But again and again, people are missing what Jesus has to say. This crowd, of course, missed this monumental miracle of Jesus walking on the water. And and we kind of wonder if they might have seen that. Would that have perhaps changed this discussion? Seems not. Again, it seems that this is the crowd who saw the signs but did not actually see the signs. They were focused on their full bellies. Jesus' words reveal their problem to them. You are working for things that are not going to last. And he reveals the eternal weight of it. They're not going to last. What you're seeking is not going to meet your need. What you're seeking to earn, to work for, you are unable to accomplish. And friends, this is an important note for us as we consider evangelism. Because we're not talking to non-believers who have some hidden potential that they just simply need to unlock. And then suddenly, they're going to hear the word and go, yeah, I get that. Uh Uh-huh. Processing, processing. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. New birth. Living water. Bread of life. Yep, I understand it all. It's not as though they simply need to find it within themselves to understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you are absolutely bankrupt to understand what it is that I'm here to do because you are stuck in this idea of what you could present to receive something from me. And so we need to recognize that in our own hearts, at least, again, the temptation of it, and to take it seriously because there is an eternal weight behind this. Because many, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, will come to him on that last day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons and healed the sick and performed many miracles in your name? The saddest thing on that last day will not necessarily be those who never heard or never willingly accepted or never wanted anything to do with. The saddest thing is going to be those who gave their lives to Jesus so that they might have something to present to him who never received grace, but simply in their last moments will say, but I went to church on that snowy day, but I got baptized, but I did the thing. I fed the, Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Back to the gospel of John and moving forward in John 17, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is one of those passages where, boy, last week was a really great passage because We could relate to that so easily, and we could walk away with something like, yeah, all right, Jesus, I want to look for you in the middle of this storm that I'm in right now. But then we come to this today, and the thing that is just overwhelming my mind as far as our problem is that in and amongst ourselves, we may have a dangerous temptation to trust in our own works. And that is far more deadly than any storm the world could throw at us. 
because it has eternal consequences. Look at the rest of the questioning of the crowd here. Verse 28. If you want to see the core of how they do not get it, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do? Seeking turns into working. The Greek uh, flip-flops between these two words. They're, They're both used for seeking and working and interpreted as such. They say, what must we be doing to do the works of God? And let's put that into today's context a little bit because, again, we know... We, we know something of what grace is, at least. We know that our salvation is only because of what Jesus did at the cross and not because of anything we've done on our own. How am I going to stay in that, though? I'm going to keep working the work of God in my life. What can I do so that when I am afraid that maybe I've fallen away or maybe I never had the salvation in the first place, what can I do to remind myself, no, actually, here's my seal of approval on the works that I've done. Verses 30 through 31 is the next question. What sign do you do? Because Jesus' response in verse 29, rather, sorry. Jesus says, this is the work of God. Ready? Okay, good. Their ears are open. They're listening. What do we got to do? This is the work of God. Jesus turns it upside down and says that you believe in him whom he has sent. And they say, if we're going to leave it all up to you, verse 30 and 31, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Um, what sign? You're, what's, you're looking for a sign? Weren't you here yesterday? Have you already forgotten so quickly the overwhelming miracle of feeding thousands of people with just a little kid's lunch? The answer is yes. They have forgotten. Because they weren't following him because they saw the signs. They were following him because their bellies were full. And because they wanted more. And their question of what sign do you do, well, of course they would say, yeah, we remember what you did yesterday. But what they're saying is, is that's not quite enough because I'm hungry again. And you're telling me that it's only by receiving something that I can truly find eternal life, that that, that working for things is just going to perish and, and end abruptly. So what is it that you're really going to do? Conversely, it's almost an okay question because did Jesus come to say, all right, here's the mission, Feeding 20,000 people. All right, now, if you'd like to um, join the church, there's a card in the pew ahead of you, and we'll just wait to see what happens. No, it was a sign. Signs point to something else, right? Nobody goes and sits underneath a McDonald's sign and sits there and waits for somebody to take their order. you got to go into the store because the sign is just a sign. It can't provide what you're really seeking. It can only point to the one who can. Additionally, in verse 31, they appeal to Moses yet again. You remember, this happened where they they all sat in the beginning of chapter 6. They all sat on the green grass. So it was springtime. It was Passover time. Passover's on their minds. They're thinking about Moses. They're thinking about Jesus being like that prophet. And so they bring him up again in verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus reveals in 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. He knew again what they were thinking. You're thinking I'm just going to be Moses 2.0, but I have to be more than that in your eyes to receive what I have to give you. The heart of what their questions are is, who are you to say these kinds of things to us? Who are you to say that my work isn't good enough? 
And it was admission that they saw the sign but didn't see the sign. So I wonder this morning, does sin have any power in your life to cover up evidences of grace? Because when you end your work day and you come home and you slam your car door, or maybe you just calmly shut your car door, and you sit down at the dinner table and you say, yes, this is what I deserve. I worked really hard today. Maybe somebody else will do the dishes for me tonight because I worked really hard today. It's been a long week. I could really use a break. Why? Because I deserve it. Could it be that those kinds of thoughts cloud over the clear evidences of God's grace in your life? Because we're so preoccupied with our own work. Jesus wants us to repent of that. He wants to tell us that he was the one approved by God to do the work of God on your behalf. I love this quote from Martin Luther. It's one that I try to keep in my mind often in regards to preaching. But Martin Luther said that he preaches justification by faith every week because every week his church forgets it. Again, I'm not coming here saying, yeah, right, Martin. Our churches just don't get it at all. But what he's expressing is something he's expressed about himself and what I would express about myself and what I think we could all confess together. We forget justification, that process of being made right by faith alone. Because the work of God is this, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He's not saying that belief, that faith is truly a work of ours. Because he's already expressed that this eternal life is going to be given to us. Faith is the response of the one who is truly received. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. A lot of pronouns in that sentence. God the Father has sent the Son so that you could have what you could never work for, what you could never earn, what you could never produce, what you could never sign off on. He has signed off on Jesus at the cross not just doing something that he came up with that has nothing to do with you, but just an inspiring story, but to become the substitute. Because what your work has really brought you is death. And that's what Jesus paid. That's the amazing grace, the good thing that we didn't deserve. He has granted to us. Though unbelieving, Jesus speaks to this unbelieving crowd and says that this is the bread that comes from heaven, that my father gives you the true bread from heaven. He gives it to you, puts it in the present tense on purpose, because though they're not receiving it right now, it seems, maybe eventually they will, but in that very moment, that gift was Christ's presence continually testifying to them that God is willing to give you grace. It's not that you need to unlock the code and then say, okay, Lord, now give me the prize. That's works. None of us who are in Christ figured it out. We received it. So it has to be for all. Because Christ is the one who endured with us in our unbelief, even to the cross, given to us, sealed by the Father, and to be sought by all Think again about this idea of being sealed with a signature today. We don't really put, you know, the ink signet rings on our official documents. We put our signature on things. And, and we know that when we sign something, we mean to say that I agree to every word that happens right before where my signature shows up. And what do you do every time you install a new app on your phone? Terms and conditions show up. 
days and days of reading. And we scroll right to the bottom. We go, agree, agree, agree. It means nothing to us. When we are at a restaurant and the, the receipt shows up on the table, we do the little calculations of the tip and we think about, did they do a good enough job for this kind of tip or that kind of tip? But then when we sign our names, we're not really thinking about the weightiness of it, do we? That's why Dave Ramsey, a fun financial Christian guy, always tells all of us to pay in cash because that's where we actually see something leaving, right? When we pay for things, cash goes away and it doesn't come back. When we pay with our card, she takes the card and then it magically returns to us and we go, I don't think, I don't think that cost me anything. When Christ was sent to the earth with the signature of God on his entire life, the full approval of the Father, it was not a transaction whereupon something was received immediately and there, there seemed to be no cost at all because Christ died on a cross. Because spiritually, in the spiritual realm, what was really happening was the Father crushed his Son under the weight of his judgment for sin. The work, the result of our own works. The result of what we would try to earn on our own. He paid it all by his blood. And yes, he rose from the grave. But he rose and still has the reminder, the scars in his hands and in his feet of what it cost him. And he will have those brothers and sisters for eternity for our benefit. So that we might, though it would be impossible, but so that we might never forget the cost of our salvation and the joy of being with him. The bread of life presents the greatest blessing and the greatest challenge to the world. Grace, faith, Christ alone. Grace from him, faith in him. I wonder if that's what you're seeking when you come to worship. Are you seeking because you saw the signs or because you like coming to the building or because you like the people that you sit by or because there's some spiritual edification that that just kind of adds, enhances your life in some sense? Or is it truly to receive the grace of the bread of life? Something to walk away with application. From this passage, it seems that we need to let faith in Christ be the defining quality of our life. Not just on Sunday mornings, not just the message that we proclaim, but how we process everything that happens in our life. First and foremost, especially our failures, our concerns, our trials, all those things, through the lens of what Christ has given us first, not as the last resort. I've said this before, I think it's important to say it again, that when we face these trials where ultimately once we've done everything we can, if it's a sickness, we've considered all the medication, considered all the hospitalization, and we've come to that point where we all say, all we can do now is pray. We sort of have this attitude that prayer is the last resort, it's the, the last thing we can do, and by implication, it's probably the least effective because we haven't really put our work into it because we're going to close our eyes and talk to somebody who's not going to talk audibly back to us. The message of the gospel would call us to receive the fact that leaning entirely on God is not only a last resort when there's nothing else that we should do, we could do, but rather it is the first go-to. It is the place we should begin in the face of trials, in the face of challenges or direction, seeking wisdom, whatever it might be. Our life needs to reflect the uniqueness of this gospel because there's nothing else like it in the world. 
every other world religion, and I challenge you to find one that doesn't. Every other world religion says, if you do this, you'll have this. And a lot of times it comes with a maybe at the end. The gospel says Christ did this so that you will certainly have eternal life in him. Three things. Let your faith in Christ reveal Jesus as your primary goal. Don't seek the bread that perishes, but seek the bread that endures to eternal life. That is to say, not just to believe once, but to continue in a life of faith. That, that everything in your life hangs on this very fact that Christ has taken your place at the cross and overcome the grave. Let your faith in Christ reveal him as your primary goal. And let that start with yourself. Do you preach the gospel to yourself daily? Do you remind yourself of what Jesus has done? Philippians 3.8, it's a great passage to go to for this. Paul writes, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's where a lot of this really hangs. The surpassing worth is not in what he's done. He, he explains in Philippians, hey, I was the most religious of religious guys. And I would count that all as loss, as rubbish, as dung for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the goal. That's the primary objective. That's the acceptable objective, attaining the resurrection from the dead. And the only way we can do that is by relying on the one who has risen from the dead. Secondly, let your faith in Christ overcome sinful tendencies to earn. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 had to come up this morning. By grace, you've been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is a common argumentative passage for theologians who would like to press their own perspective on Scripture as hard as they possibly can. But consider this, what Paul is saying at the end when he says, it is the gift of God. The argument is, are you talking about grace being the gift of God? Are you talking about the salvation being the gift of God? Are you talking about faith being the gift of God? Or is it most obvious to just say it's all of it? By grace, you have been saved through faith, not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You don't supply the faith to God's grace. He supplies the faith. Because the grace creates that faith in you. It prompts it. It awakens it. It, it empowers you to live by faith. So let your faith in Christ overcome any sinful tendency to earn. Don't interpret everything else that we see around in the world around us about how we earned this, we earned that, we've deserved this, or we've deserved that. Let Christ give you all that you need. And lastly, let your faith in Christ reveal him to be the one who gives life to the world. Because that's what he says in verse 33 towards the end. It's, it's hard to cut off in the middle of what he's saying, but that's what we're going to do. Is the bread who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The mission is not just for some small group of people. It is the only way for life for any in the whole world throughout all of history to receive that. And that's why we're still here. That's why he doesn't just beam us up to heaven after we finally figured out grace. After we finally received it. He's designed for us to be a sanctuary for those who do not have the bread of life. He's designed for us to bear testimony to those who say, I know where you can find what you truly need. 
Let's bow our heads and ask him for this grace to continue to pour out on us. Lord, we thank you this morning. Though there is a, a great struggle in our minds and in our hearts, and, and certainly for many in this world who have heard the gospel and said, I don't want anything to do with that, that at the root of it, there may in fact be this matter of our earning, of our deserving, of our hard work and our efforts being counted as loss, as Paul says, so that Christ might be known. May it not be true of us, Lord, that we would hold so tightly to who we were or what we've done, but that we would hold tightly to Christ and all he's done on our behalf to be the bread of life. May we seek him earnestly day by day. May you ever reveal that signature of approval, that stamp of approval, that he is who he says he is. He's done what he says he's done, and he can do far beyond what we could think or imagine. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.